0: millions and millions of people were slaughtered in the Holocaust, right? And the world was completely silent. When good people stay quiet, terrible things can happen. When racism goes unchecked, it can lead to hatred. Hatred kills. We need books like this. We need books that tell people not just what Anne Frank went through in the Holocaust, but what Anne Frank tells us all takes place in the confines of the attic. She didn't get to write the book about the horrors that mm. came after. This is the book that Anna didn't get to write.
1: Hey guys, how you doing? Hope you're having a good week so far. My name is Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and this is my podcast, Feel Better, Live More. For thousands of years, humans have used storytelling to enhance and change lives. From prehistoric fireside stories to songs, novels, films, even social media reels, we are hardwired to seek identification and knowledge through hearing about other people's experiences. Now, some of my most popular podcast episodes to date have featured guests who do just this, relating their extraordinary life experience to fascinate, move and benefit all of those who hear it. And I'm honoured to add today's guests to that list. Ruthie May is the daughter of the late Holocaust survivor Hannah Pick Goslar. Dina Kraft is Hannah's co-writer, who helps bring her incredible story to life in the brand new book, My Friend, Anna Frank. Together, Ruthie and Dina bring authenticity and emotional resonance to a real-life story that will change the hearts and minds of all who hear it. If you are familiar with the famous Diary of Anne Frank... Hannah actually appeared in it as Lise Gusens. As Ruthie and Dina explained to me, Hannah was born to Jewish parents in Berlin in 1928. And after the Nazi party was elected in 1933, the family escaped to what they believed was the safety of Amsterdam. And it was here that she met her friend, Anna Frank. The two became inseparable until one day, Anna just disappeared then in 1943, Hannah's family was arrested and transported to Bergen-Belsen concentration camp and somehow Hannah managed to survive inside there until the camp was finally liberated. The book, My Friend Anna Frank, is the story of Hannah's life before the concentration camp, throughout and after. Now, I was actually sent an early copy of this book a few months ago, and once I started reading, I simply could not put it down. It was moving, profound, and genuinely hand on heart, one of the most important books that I have ever read. It's a remarkable story of how Hannah coped during her traumatic childhood, and despite it all, blossomed into a kind, compassionate adult determined to honour her friends. It would have been lovely to talk to Hannah herself about her life story, but she actually died back in October 2022, just a few weeks shy of her 94th birthday. This is without question a horrifying, unimaginable and crushing story. But at the same time within it, there are definite moments of beauty, compassion and humanity. It really was a great privilege to talk to Ruthie and Dina about Hannah and her life I hope you enjoy listening Dina you obviously spent a lot of time with Hannah writing this book with her I wonder if you could outline her story for us because maybe people listening or watching they won't know her story and there's so much I want to unpick within that story but you know, do you feel able to give us a bit of an overview?
0: Sure, sure. So Hannah was born in 1928 in Berlin. Her father was a prominent journalist who had actually at this point um, become part of the Weimar government. It um, was a government that was formed after World War I and this, this idea for like a socialist democratic um, uh, government. Um, but it was, of course, in the throes of after World War I when Germany was sort of tearing itself apart over what had happened and of their, their terrible sort of humiliating defeat in the war. And uh, her father was one of the few Jews in the government. And he happened, happened to also be a religious Jew, which is sort of unusual for the time to have a religious Jew in such a high post. Um, but it was a very privileged life that she first was born into. Um, her family lived across from a beautiful garden in central Berlin called the Tiergarten. She'd walk along the rose gardens with her father and go to the zoo and look at the elephants. And she would visit him at the... Um, visited him at his office near the Reichstag, where the government was. Um, He was observant of Shabbat, so he couldn't drive on Shabbat or uh, take public transportation. So they would walk together sometimes when he had work to do there. And in the evenings they'd go to, uh, you know, her her mom would whisk off in in, in beautiful... um, Velvet dresses with her father to important mm-hmm. occasions and, and, and parties and whatnot. But the world suddenly became darker and darker and darker outside her door. Um, the Nazis were rising, the, the Nazi movement was rising in power. Um, through her bedroom window, she could smell the smoke of um, books being burned. Um, she could um, hear the sounds of um, boots on the ground as they were marching through the town, shouting anti Jewish and anti foreigner slogans.
1: So, so this is many years before the war actually started yes yes this yeah. is this
0: 33. Was, was a, this was, yeah this is not this is like 32 33 when she was still in Berlin. she was this tiny little yeah. girl three four years old um and you know her first memories basically of her of her of, of, is, is of the sounds outside and sort of her parents worried voices and then watching the house being packed up this beautiful grand apartment being packed up and the family um, her, um, had to become refugees her father had been speaking out very prominently against hitler on the radio, in newspaper columns, um, and, and he had been fired from his post in the government, like all Jews at this point had been fired from their posts in the government, and he felt they had no future in Germany. And their parent, her parents felt incredibly connected to Germany, like so many Jews living in Germany. You know, they were active in culture and in medicine and in teaching, and they felt they were much very fabric, and all of a sudden the country was turning against them as this hatred was rising. They
2: were a thousand years in Germany, Family, a so, thousand years. Yeah, so they were more Germany, German than the Germans, right? And they felt
0: like this,
1: right? And so it must have been heart wrenching to suddenly feel in your to be a refugee homelands that yeah. you're no longer welcome.
0: Yeah, yeah. Her father had been a, a, a soldier in in World War One. Like so many, so many Jew, Jews, so many Jews fought in the World War. Ha, this in is, World is War I. Hannah's father. Hannah's father so yeah, yeah. your Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Wow. And also my great-grandfather, he was one of the leaders of the the Jews in Germany. And yeah. the, as leaders, they took care of the Jews in all the world, like in Morocco, like in Sudan, uh, Ethiopia, like in Russia, like in Warsaw, in Poland. They were really around all the Jews in all the world yeah. to yeah. help them, to help really the poor people of them.
1: Yeah. So so the family are living in Berlin, things are starting to change mm-hmm. dramatically. And you write at the start of this book, I think in the early chapters basically about the family having to pack up and leave. And take refuge in Amsterdam.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's, and it's interesting. You know, they 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 briefly touched down in England actually, but ended up ultimately in Amsterdam. And like a lot of you know refugees from 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 places of conflict or war, they kind of think they'll wait it out, right? They'll wait out. The, you know, Holland borders Germany. They thought, you know, you you know, in the early in the early time in, in the early days, they could even still visit Germany before the war. So they thought, you know, the way you see today, people fleeing Ukraine, where do they mostly go? Poland you know, they're close by, they'll go back. That's what they hope. Um, And they began to build a new life in Amsterdam. It was extremely difficult. They didn't have much money um, um, and they didn't speak the language. Hannah, um, Ruti's grandmother, uh, described Dutch as a throat condition, not a language. (laughs) 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 Um, And... um, and uh, they basically, she, um, Hannah's parents uh, created a sort of a, an agency for fellow refugees out of their, in their living room. Because he
2: understood that the Jews will come there. Yeah. They yeah. would have
0: to fly from Germany. Right. And there was, no, there was, there wasn't a lot of support inside the country for helping um, German refugees inside Holland. So he and a, a, a colleague and friend named um, Mr. Lederman created this like, two-man agency basically in the living room. And um, Hannah's mother helped out as the typist and secretary and uh and they were just sort of beginning to settle in and they had just arrived and Hannah was um um terrified of going to school she didn't speak a word of dutch she didn't know anybody um she had to be sort of pried off of the door of, of, of the family um front door to to get, to get her to go to nursery school and um at nursery school, um, this big beautiful Montessori school which still exists in Amsterdam was wow. yeah. the same play uh,
2: place that the children pray in the same places, the same nothing games. changes there.
0: Yeah, these sort of high ceilings and beautiful doors leading out to a garden. It was at the time sort of a new idea of progressive education, and the, her parents were progressive, and they wanted her to have a progressive, liberal education. And uh, she was sort of a shy, it was a, chi- a shy child, and she was clinging to her mother's skirts, and she was terrified. And the, speaking to the teacher, and looking around at the, at the children all busy with different sort of games and places, and she sees a little girl with shiny black hair playing silver bells. Yeah. And the girl turns around and they look at each other and they have this moment of recognition because just the day before in the grocery store, um, Hannah and her mother had overheard another woman and her daughter speaking in German and they had exchanged a couple of words at the grocery store. And that was a little girl from the grocery store. And um, this little girl playing bells turns around, sees the very shy Hannah, looks at her. They recognize each other and they run into each other's arms with a big, big hug, chattering away in German, two little refugee girls. And that little girl's name was Anne Frank.
1: The Anne Frank, who I actually, I'm, I'm now learning that her name is actually Anna, Anna.
0: Frank, mm, not, not Anna Anne Frank, as it's me. often
1: said. So Anna and Hannah, mm-hmm. that was the start of this beautiful poignant friendship that is detailed so wonderfully in the book
2: it's also with the parents the parents became very good friends every shabbat every saturday they
0: used to eat together so it's very so Shabbat is so traditionally right. So Jews neat, have Jewish have the the Jewish Sabbath begins on Friday night, and there's a traditional meal that goes with that. You yeah. have challah, the, uh, this this traditional egg bread called challah, and you bless the wine, and you have a nice meal together. And Hannah's family, that was more religious, would host this meal on Friday nights, and Anna's family would come. Anna's family lived in the building just next door to theirs.
1: So, so what's really interesting as as we sort of unpick this story is. I think the similarities, at least at the start from what happens when people flee a certain country. Like it's really interesting that they they left Germany and found other Jewish families in Amsterdam and then shared that sort of cultural experience with them to almost, I don't know, keep some sort of connection going. And, And I think about, and again, circumstances very, very different to be clear, My parents were immigrants from India to the UK. And, you know, I think now back to my childhood, they would have other Indian friends and they would do things that they used to do back at home as a way of sort of holding on to that culture. So it's interesting to hear that similarity, right? Uh, They were
2: holding on to what they were used to, especially the mother. She really wanted all the time if she could, to go back to Germany because she loved all the culture there. It was very hard for her yeah. to get used to the Dutch culture.
1: Now, what's interesting for me um, is that we go through in the book, the in the first person beautifully, Hannah writing about her experiences in Amsterdam, meeting Anna Frank, um, going to school, you know, the things that other little girls go through, you know, the things they were talking about, the things they were getting teased about. It's, it's, it feels like you're reading a really good fictional novel, yet it's actually real. It's all real. And what's striking to me is that as the war started closing in in Amsterdam, you know, the rising of the Nazis there, the the restrictions being put on Jewish people there. She, she comes across as really upbeat, you know, like an optimist. Like even though they couldn't go to certain cinemas or no Jews allowed at mm. that swimming pool. In what she considered her home, certainly as I read the book, I read a story of someone who is optimistic and positive. Is that, is that mm-hmm. fair to say?
2: She was very optimistic, I think, till the end of her life. Yeah. Really? And I think maybe because of this, she had good life, but she what they did the germans it was every day another thing so you say okay i cannot go to the swimming pool i will not go i cannot sit on the bench in the park okay i cannot see a, a film i will do it at home i cannot go to sandbox i will do it at home so every yeah every every day a new law but he wanted to get used to it and say, okay, I cannot go with a bicycle. I will go by foot. I cannot go with the bus. Okay. I will. Everything, they tried to get used to it and said, if this is what it is, it's not so bad, you know? They didn't know on that
0: time that the, all the Jews are sent to being killed in Poland, you know? Yeah, they
1: didn't, So, yeah.
0: So they, I said, it's really interesting the way the Germans handled the the Dutch story. When they ended up, um, invading in May uh, 1940, it was they called it a, a velvet conquest. So at first, everyone was terrified. I mean, imagine Hannah is in her bed; she hears the sound of what she thinks is thunder. It turns out it's planes, it's Nazi warplanes flying overhead. The invasion has begun.
1: So let's just let's just get a timeline yeah. here. Okay, yeah. how old is Hannah at this time?
0: She's 11 years old. Okay,
1: so. Uh, and that just gives me shudders that I mean, when I think about how old my children are at the moment, right? So she's 11 years old. She's living her life, her new life in Amsterdam, having her and her family have, have fled from Berlin because mm-hmm. they're scared and worried. And now they're getting scared and worried. And she, despite all the restrictions, she just goes to bed one night and she she hears what she thinks is thunder, but it's actually planes.
0: Yeah. Okay. And she runs to her parents' bed. and She jumps into her bed with her parents to be comforted. And they also think it's thunder at first. And then the father draws back the curtains. The first light of morning is beginning. And they see plane after plane after plane. According to some accounts, the planes were flying so low that they could actually see the swastikas on the wings. Um, Rotterdam at the time was being bombed into basically oblivion. <laughs> um, Amsterdam was not bombed. But um, the planes were coming in and her father who is a very calm man otherwise, very sort of fastidious, flies into a panic. He's convinced the Germans have come. He's going to be a public enemy number one because of his past government, government job and um, being a critic against Hitler. And they start trying to destroy any evidence they might have in the house that they were, that, you know, of of his connection, of of his past life. So um, out of the drawers come files and files of papers. And Hannah's job is to take the papers which they're tearing up and toss them into the toilet and flush them down the toilet. Um, and at the same time, um, her mother sees a bronze statue, a bronze statue of her father's former boss, who had been the president of Prussia, who was one of I guess, uh, Otto Brown, who was one of Hitler's rivals, mm-hmm. I guess you could say. And I think that's incriminating evidence. So they start hauling down the stairs of their apartment building, the statue of Otto Brown, and they put it— They. Sh- um, Shove it on the sidewalk, and they look around them. And all around them are other German Jews. This neighborhood was in South Amsterdam. It was a new neighborhood. A lot of German Jews, refugees, had moved into this neighborhood. And they were also trying to get rid of whatever they thought might be criminating. And people were burning papers and files that they thought might be problematic. Um, So people are in
1: a panic. He will
0: also. He left the house. He left the house for five weeks. He thought maybe we'll
2: find. This is Hannah's some... dad,
1: your grandfather. He, yeah,
2: yeah. He left the house because he was afraid when the Germans come, they will take him for sure. Yeah. So,
1: just again, I don't mean to keep pausing the story. It's mm-hmm. just because obviously people may not have read the book yet. Mm-hmm. I hope everyone reads it. It's it's so so, it's so compelling and engaging, and I really think it will help everyone. But I'll be honest with you, I couldn't put that book down when I started reading it. I was on holiday with my wife and kids and I, I just couldn't stop reading it. And every time I stopped, I would just hug my kids a little bit more. I was just a little bit more grateful for my life. Honestly, like it's one of those books where I, I, I don't think I quite see the world in the same way anymore. But I'm, you know, my kids at the moment are 13 and 10.
2: Exactly the the age.
1: So now you're telling me there's an 11-year-old girl who is now trying to help her dad hide incriminating evidence because the Nazis are coming. That is a completely different childhood to the childhood my kids are currently experiencing, that's for sure. So there's fear uh, anxiety, watching your dad probably change overnight in terms of character. I don't know. I mean, tell me, what was that like? Yeah, no, he,
0: he was he was very scared. And what he did was he tried to come here to this country. He tried to come to England. Like thousands of other people, he rushed to the shores. To He, ru- he rushed to a port city um, about an hour outside of Amsterdam, hoping to catch a boat to England. And although thousands and thousands of people went to that shore, I think in the end, 200 people were able to somehow secure passage to England. Um so it was this complete time of panic, and as, as Ruti said, he lived in hiding for weeks and weeks until he finally came out.
1: Yeah, yeah. C- can I ask one thing that this has been I've been thinking about a lot? That the, the title of the book is "My Friend Anna Frank." Now, many people around the world know the story of Anna Frank through her diary. Okay. Now, I'll be honest; I have not read her diary. Um, I, I know many people have. I just haven't for whatever reason. I wasn't exposed to it at school. I think I'm going to try this summer out, but Hannah's story herself of this move, her going to concentration camps, her surviving it, what happened afterwards, which we're definitely going to get into, that story has full merit of its own, right? Mm. So why the title, my friend, Anna Frank?
0: Yeah, I think the title comes from this idea that the through line of her entire life was her friendship with Anna Frank. You know, she moved, you know, by chance she happens to befriend a little girl that becomes the face of Holocaust victims. Anna Frank has become sort of an icon, a symbol. Um, You know, the the numbers are too much to grasp. Six million is too much to grasp. 1.5 million children were killed.
2: Yeah, Mm -hmm. and she is the face of the children of the Holocaust.
1: And there's a certain you know, heartbreaking irony where by, you know, we, we hear these exchanges in the book between Hannah and Anna when they were little and Anna wants to be famous, right? Exactly. Her name is known all over the world. Um, it's quite something, isn't it?
0: Yeah, and to think that Anna was writing in that writing in captivity—you know, for over two years, she was living in this prison, which was called the, the she called it the secret annex, this attic above above her her father's work. Um, but what's remarkable about her, you know, the first the first uh, title of the diary was um, "Diary of a Young Girl." She was thirteen years old when she begins the diary. She's you know just after her, just uh, she gets it as a birthday present. Um, but she's fifteen years old when um, about nine months before she's arrested. A minister from the Dutch government in exile in based in London has a broadcast. By the way, it's illegal to listen to this broadcast, but they're in hiding and they're listening to it. And he says, Dutch people, save your diaries, save your letters, save any kind of first person accounts of what this wartime is like. Because after the war, people are going to want to know and need to know how we survived this moment. Everybody in the attic turns to Anna and says, you, your diary, you have to keep your diary for after the war. And from literally that day forth, she starts revising her diary with an eye to it being published oh, after wow. the war. So it's not just a diary, the musings, the um, blossomings of a 13-year-old girl. It's a 15-year-old girl who's, as as Ruti has said before, and, and as Hannah would always say, you know, it was in a sort of a hothouse, intense experience. She sort of, she... Her 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 maturation, you know, increased exponentially because she couldn't go anywhere, right? And she has this incredible depth um, uh, of understanding and of, of her own of self awareness. And she writes, and in her in her editing is where the real genius comes out. She sort of takes some things out, she moves things around, she adds she adds suspense and tension, she wow. adds background about the anti Jewish laws, for example, about what's going on. And while she's writing in in this diary, she's also writing about her beloved friend Hannah.
2: Yeah. But therefore, a lot of people said, oh, there was no Anna, it is not right, it is, it is not uh, written really, because she changed, you know, there are some ways that it is written. I see. Then in the end, Mr. Frank saw that everybody is talking about this and he said, I will put everything inside Whatever yeah. she did, even if she wrote something about her mother, and even she wrote even about my 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 mother that she had two left hands. So he put everything inside like that a raw, people will know that this, this is real. real. That's what's it.
1: you know what's what's striking for me is that I think it's when they rather fortuitously meet while well, they don't see each other, but they they hear each other in the concentration camps. Mm-hmm. A couple of years later or so, um, I think if my recollection serves me, that Anna told Hannah that, look, I, I was there, we were in hiding for over two years. I didn't go outside the entire time. And I just thought about that. That's a 13-year-old a girl, Anna Frank, in the attic, not going outside at all. Like it's, again, when I put it through the lens of being a dad of kids. I think, what well, I know what happens when a kid doesn't go outside for, for it's like not one day. Easy.
2: It's not easy, but you know, in the Holocaust, people had gone over very, very worse than what happened in the attic, you know? Yeah. Because they were just suffering their life and humiliated and whatever. So... Let's say in Israel, people say, "Okay, so she was not uh, going out." But that's not the point. Really, the point is what happened afterwards. What she suffered afterwards—the moment she was caught. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, to live with this fear that you will be caught, it's very dreadful. But then to be caught, it's much more worse. Yeah.
1: So, so let's go then to maybe we could pick up the story when Hannah and her family have to go to the concentration camp. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you tell me about that moment?
0: Yeah. So it was June 20th, 1943. Until this point, they had been they, they were lucky enough to postpone deportation. Hannah's mother, for a couple of reasons, Hannah's mother was pregnant with what would have been her third child. Um, she's afraid to go to the hospital um, to give birth there because she's heard, heard terrible things. It's German-occupied occupied Amsterdam and she's not... She doesn't feel safe giving birth in a hospital because there. Because she's Jewish. Because she's Jewish. Yeah. So because she the Nazis Jewish. would come to the hospital and take people. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, would take them, would, would deport them. So she was concerned about that. So she decides to give birth at home with a Jewish doctor and a midwife. And unfortunately, the there were complications with the delivery. It was a breach delivery. And she gives birth to a stillborn boy. Um and, uh, and then she and dies. Then she after died two days. Yeah, then she died shortly after. And this is all happening in the house with Hannah there. You know, hearing her in childbirth, um, hearing and then you know um, seeing the father praying that everything will be okay, and then it is not okay.
1: So, my understanding of the story is that one of the reasons that your mother Hannah um, and her and, and her father and the family were not being deported. Were able to stay in Amsterdam. From what I understand from the book, there was two reasons. One was they had some sort of some sort of official papers. Because of the the role of um, Hannah's dad, exactly. Yeah. But then later on, when that seemed to not mean that much at all, there seemed to be something because uh, Hannah's mother was pregnant.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You couldn't be deported when pregnant. On that
2: time, they didn't take pregnant women. On that time.
1: Why? Why she was? You know, that's that sounds like a. Rem- you
2: you never understand what the you know, Germans yeah. did.
1: But for whatever reason, so so whilst Hannah's mum was alive, they couldn't be taken. Well, assuming that the laws or the rules were going to be followed. But mm-hmm. after the stillbirth, after her mum died, suddenly you don't have that reason anymore, well, is that
0: right? It's not entirely clear. And I think this is actually an important point to say. We talked, the, the Nazis sort of ruled at first with in in, uh, in with a sort of velvet glove approach. You know, they sort of slowly, at first things seemed okay and then slowly, slowly the, the restrictions on Jews got more and more intense. But what also was going on all the time is that it was really unclear what their policies were, you okay. know? So you never really knew you know, um, if you were safe, if you're not safe. And so you would follow certain rules and think you're okay, but then, and then you would still get caught, you know, you would still get sort of deported. So for example, um, Hannah's parents, her grandfather and her father were on what was called the Jewish council. So they got a special stamp in their papers saying that they were to be spared. But, um, but, uh, and then they thought, and, and at a certain point, they, the German Jews thought that they were going to be safer, the, the German Jew, the German refugee Jews. Another point, the Dutch-born Jews thought they would be safer. And the Nazis constantly played on this sort of divide and conquer and the sort of um, rivalries even within the community. Um, and uh, actually what, what started, what what got Hannah's father and grandfather involved in what was called the Jewish Council was because... Um, In July 1942, the first call-up orders, the first mass call-up orders began in Holland. And who were they taking? German, uh, mostly teenagers, 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds, were getting call-up orders to be deported to the East. Again, they didn't know what the East- For a
2: working camp. And my mother said, oh, 16 years, boy, he goes to a working camp. This is what they
0: need. And they never, never came back. Right. So they didn't, they didn't, at this point, they didn't know they weren't coming back, but they, um, but they knew it was not good. No one wanted to see their 15 or 16-year-old gr- um, child being sent off. And it's, ex- it's ex- exactly that order. The Frank family got an order that Anne's older sister, Margot, who was 16, was going to be have to, c- to get called up. At this point, imagine the Frank family had been planning for, for over a year, I think, to go into hiding, but they weren't quite ready to go into hiding yet. But they move up their plans once Margot was called, the order for her is c- called up comes so that she will not be taken away.
1: The way it's written in the book is very much that one day Hannah just goes round yeah, to, exactly. to Hannah's this house. Just for whatever, to to play or I can't but exactly. and yeah. actually they're just like, so no They've gone, they've gone to Switzerland. Right,
0: exactly. Only later on did she did she sort of connect the dots and realize that Margot had been called up. And that's why they, the, the, yeah. the, the timing was, the, the, yeah, and of course it was a complete surprise. Like went, and of course you, they had to be told that because that you couldn't day. share
1: these things with anyone.
0: And when my mother was
2: going back from this house of Anna, she saw her friend Alfred Bloch. And he got the same calling from the German and he had to go
0: because yeah. he couldn't go in hiding and he was killed in two months. Yeah. So just to back up a minute, I mean, so that night in July, if you were in that, if you were in those apartments overlooking this beautiful green square at 2 a.m., if you pulled back your curtain, what would you see? You would see a scene of dozens and dozen of 15 and 16-year-old Jewish teenagers. I'm going to cry, sorry. Um. um with their rucksacks and their bedrolls, they were told very specifically what to bring, and they were walking quietly in the darkness to the central train station of, Amst- of Amsterdam. Their parents were not allowed to come with them because there was a curfew; Jews were not allowed out of the house after eight p.m. So these imagine these parents sending out their fifteen and sixteen year old children into the darkness and what would eventually become their doom. They didn't know that yet, um, and uh, and and most of and, and anyone who saw that you know would have seen them going out um, in this. Sort of these sort of ghost like figures walking across the green. And they yeah.
2: never came back. No one.
1: So Anna's family have gone into hiding. No one knows that. It's kept yeah. secret. My mother
2: was sure they are in Switzerland. Yeah. So
1: Hannah thinks, oh, great that they've escaped, gutted that she hasn't gone with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, how soon after that does Hannah, her little sister Gabby, and her father? get on one of these trains to, is it Westonbrook? They went first. Yeah. It like, was
2: one year later.
1: One year later. So yeah. in that one year, they're still living fear, yeah. the screws tightening even more.
0: Exactly. And then what
1: What actually happens in that moment?
0: It's uh, in, in complete secrecy. Um, The Germans have blocked off every single bridge to South Amsterdam. As you know, Amsterdam is a city of bridges. And so if you block off the bridges, there's no route to escape. And there are um, tanks and there are trucks and there's no way to escape. And there are loudspeakers in the street saying, all Jews come down to report... To report to you know such and such square, twenty kilograms, five minutes. You have to go, and That's so actually a- Hannah's family, her father said, "We're okay. We have our stamps and our passport. We are protected. Mm-hmm. We don't have to go." Um, and then lo and behold, there's a knock on the door, and they're told very quickly they have to, that, you know, that their stamp means nothing, and that they have to go and report down to the square below. And um, so, so,
1: how many? Are, so it's it's Hannah.
0: It's Hannah, her little sister, who's just two and a half years so old. So her sister
1: Gabby. Mm-hmm.
0: and her, the grandfather and grandmother,
1: her dad and her grandfather and grandma. So five of them. Yeah, head down to the main station.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, for yeah, first they the first they go down to a, like a another sort of square area where the Jews are, be, are being assembled. And imagine people are bringing you know their bags again and their and their bedrolls and they're bringing. Winter coats, because although it's June, and um, they don't know, they know they're going east, and east can be cold.
1: They don't know if it's a different country, or they just know on the compass we're going they know east. it basically. is not
0: good, but they right. do not good. but but what's interesting at that, that very that same morning of June twentieth, nineteen forty three. Um, at 6 a.m., just a block or two away from them, we talked about Mr. Lederman who worked together with um, with Hannah's father. He had a daughter named Sana. Sana was- Zane. Zane, Zane, short for Suzanne. She was good friends also with Hannah and Anna, and they were a threesome. And tell us, how, how do you- think? Anne,
2: Hannah, Zane. <laughs>
0: And she was a beautiful little girl with with dark hair, braids, very musical. Sweet. Her parents were musicians, and they're also from Berlin, part of that milieu I was talking. We were talking yeah. about before. They would have Sunday afternoons of concerts. concerts in their home. Very cultured people. Her father was a lawyer, um, and uh, she had an older sister. Her name was Barbara, and so uh, Barbara had a boyfriend who was in the underground who had warned her, do not, get, do not get deported, because if you get deported, what's happening, what we're hearing in our underground sources is you will be killed. Do not go. And uh, in the end, Barbara goes underground and gets fake papers. Her parents refused to do so. Her father, like so many other of these German Jews that were kind of sticklers for just doing everything the right way, he said, I have never broken the law. I will never, I am not going to break the law now. If I'm called up, I will go. By chance, that night before, she'd snuck out of her hiding place, had come back to the family home because she missed her parents, you know, and mm. she missed her little sister. And she, again, pleads with them, come underground with me, come underground with me. And they say, no, we can't do it. That morning at six in the, six in the morning, before... Before anybody else knows, and uh, someone from the underground has been sent to collect her, to tell her, to warn yeah. her to leave. What is that person's name, their codename? Cassandra, of all names. Cassandra, the Greek, you know, the warning, yeah. na- the, the doom, the, the person giving the word of doom. And, she's, and she tells her parents, and they say, No, 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 we're, we are going to go. And they're sort of pleading and going back and forth. And, um, and, he's, and, and the father at one point says, My child, you have my blessing. Go. Go. And she goes and she goes but she across. She couldn't take Zane. She couldn't take her little sister. Her parents didn't want to depart ways. So, so,
1: so um, she's gone. She's gone. The elder daughter.
2: She's still living in the United States.
1: She's still alive.
2: She's 97.
1: She's 97 and still alive. And she, yeah. so she was living underground. And I think her hiding. husband
0: got such a Nobel Prize. He was a Nobel Prize winner in chemistry years later. Anyway, she... she
1: and the, the other three in the family?
0: All murdered in Sobibor. But they left behind letters. The family left behind letters. And those letters were very helpful for me when I was working on the book.
1: How did you get the chance to even write this book? Yeah, How did that come about? Just taking a quick break to give a shout out to Boncharge, Charge, who are sponsoring today's show. Now, Boncharge are a brand that is dedicated to helping you sleep better and live better. And they have a whole range of wellness products that my family and I have been using for many years. Now, one of their newer products is proving very, very popular, and that's their infrared sauna blanket, which is much cheaper and more accessible than having a sauna in your own home. It's really easy to set up, takes less than a minute and I myself really enjoy using it. You can basically enjoy a quick 30 or 40 minute session whilst relaxing, reading, or watching television. I also love their blue light blocking glasses, which I think are some of the highest quality out there. And in my house, all of the bedside lamps for myself and my children contain Bond charges, amber low light bulbs, which have made a huge difference. If you go to bondcharge.com forward slash livemore and use the coupon code livemore, they are giving you an incredible 20% off all their products. That's b o n c h a r g e dot com forward slash livemore and use the coupon code livemore to save 20%. Vivo Barefoot are also sponsoring today's show. Now, I am a huge fan of Vivo barefoot shoes. I've been wearing them for over 10 years, well before they started supporting my podcast. And they really have had a huge impact on my own life, as well as that of my family, many of my friends, and a lot of my patients. I have seen so many benefits when people start wearing minimalist shoes like Vivos. You see improvements in things like back pain, knee pain, hip pain, foot pain, Even things like plantar fasciitis I have seen go away when people start wearing minimalist shoes. But one of the big things that people notice is a generalised increased enjoyment of movement. Because when you start walking around in minimalist shoes like Vivo's, you automatically become more mindful of the experience as you feel much more connected to the ground beneath your feet. And contrary to what you might think... Most people find Vivos really, really comfortable. In fact, many people who try them tell me they would never go back to wearing cushioned shoes. Now, I recently picked up their Primus Light 3 shoes, and I gotta say, I love them. They are so light to wear and they are so comfortable. If you have not tried out Vivos yet, what are you waiting for? It is completely risk free to do so because they offer a 100-day trial for new customers. So if you're not happy, you can just send them back for a full refund. They are the only shoes that I've worn for over 10 years now. My wife and kids also love wearing them. If you go to vivobarefoot.com forward slash live more, they are giving 15% off as a one-time code to all of my podcast listeners. Terms and conditions apply to get your 15% off codes. All you have to do is go to vivobarefoot.com forward slash live more.
0: So by chance, like 20 plus years ago, when I was working as a journalist for the Associated Press in Jerusalem, I was assigned to interview Hannah. And I oh. and, and I I was so delighted. I was so nervous. I was so excited to meet this here. As you described, like I felt like Anna Frank was one of my friends after reading about yeah. her. And then I was gonna meet a real life friend. And I was so moved and I was so taken. Always, I always remembered her story. And um, in January last year, I got a phone call from a literary agent saying that Penguin Random House was looking for a ghostwriter. Um, and they didn't know who the person was. They just said it was a Holocaust survivor and she was 93 years old. And just by some strange chance, three weeks earlier, Hannah's name had like popped up into my head. And I Googled Hannah Pit Goslar <laughs> to see honestly if she was still alive. <laughs> I just wanted to know if she was still with us. And I was so relieved. Oh, she is. <laughs> and then three weeks later, I get this phone call asking, basically asking um, to, if, if I'd be interested in throwing my name in the hat to, uh, to help write. This story
1: so you get the gig to to, to write mm. the book um and look it sounds like you were familiar with the story of the holocaust in, in quite a lot of detail from your work as a journalist and i'm
0: also the daughter of um of a family that were refugees from nazi europe so oh, really it was, yes so it very much felt like a, a in some ways sort of a, a person a, a, it felt almost like called to the story in a way
1: yeah so you, you already know a lot of the um facts, mm-hmm. right? Of what's being presented about what happens. But then there's logical facts and then there's emotional experiences. And often they're two very different things, right? So I guess has something changed in your outlook on what happened in the 1930s and 1940s from your conversations with Hannah? Because you knew it all before, I guess. You knew a lot of it before, but but so what? what changed in you?
0: Because suddenly I was walking in Hannah's footsteps. I was like thinking Hannah's thoughts. I was trying to get into Hannah's emotional state of being. I sort of had to sort of like become a vessel for Hannah, as it were. And I it was so intense and so involved that after Hannah and I would have a session, I would, we would both say, oh, we're so tired. But um, I remember a few, a few mornings we would sort of come back together and she would say, oh, I, I was having bad dreams again. And I was like, oh, I was having bad dreams again last night too. It was almost sort of like our dream worlds kind of intersected because I was sort of living and breathing her experience so intensely. So involved. Yeah, so that I I sort of took it on almost as my own.
1: I know you heard this conversation before you came on the show. I spoke to um, Edith Eger Mm. a few years ago now, a a conversation that truly changed me. Um, And she was in Auschwitz concentration camp. And I, I know she's given a a wonderful um, front cover quote for this book. Did you Have you ever met Edith?
0: No, but I would love to. She's the hero of mine after reading her book.
1: Yeah, I mean, she calls this book heartbreaking and life-affirming. And that, there's something about that. That's how I feel about it. There's something harrowing about the story, but beautiful at the same time.
2: The great f- uh, friendship that, you know, when you are starving and you think to bring food to your friend that is starving or you think she's even more starving than you?
1: Well, the humanity really shines through, right? And and so let's jump to that part Mm -hmm. of the story maybe whereby um, Hannah, Hannah thinks that Anna Frank and her family have managed to escape and they've gone to Switzerland. She doesn't know that they were actually hiding up in the attic. So, she thinks that her friend Anna is safe. Hannah, then with her family, is in the is uh, in a concentration camp, not eating mm-hmm. much. They're starving. They're having to do the most just horrendous things. Um, and then she gets word that her old friend He's Anna like, the fence. is just over the fence. Let's pick up the story there. Yeah. What, how did that come about?
0: Yeah, so Bergen-Belsen, um, at this point in February...
1: So Bergen-Belsen is the name of this second concentration camp.
0: Right, yes. It's, it's, a, it's a massive complex with all sorts of camps and sub compounds and... And
1: this is still in Holland? This is, no, this is actually in Germany. No, no, in it's Germany. in
0: Germany. It's, it's in, in Germany. East Germany. Right. So at this point in the war, the war is going very badly for the Germans. And Bergen-Belsen is suddenly swelling with prisoners. It's expanding, like uh, exponentially the numbers of people coming in are being crammed in in large and larger numbers. Um, But the Germans don't want the Russians to see what's happening in camps like Auschwitz. So they're taking the Jews on these terrible death marches westward towards Germany. So they can sort of basically kind of warehouse as many of the other Jewish prisoners inside Germany and not inside Poland. And among the people that came from Auschwitz, either by foot or by train, were women who were housed in a camp next to the camp that Anna was in that Hannah was in. So it's imagine it's a huge complex of a camp, but there are different camps within the camp. Hannah was in a slightly more privileged, quote unquote, part of Bergen Belsen because she had um two things going for her. She was uh, had uh, a foreign passport that was basically bought by her family. Paraguayan um, passport. A Paraguayan passport. And she also had something called a Palestine certificate. This meant that she was part of a group called the Exchange Jews that the German government hoped to be hoped to exchange for British uh, prisoners of war. So they were going to- British prisoners. British, yes, exactly. So the Germans and the British had this sort of this plan going on, they would do some sort of swap. So um, that is partially also what gave Hannah and her family hope when they were in Bergen-Belsen that they would be eventually swapped as part of this exchange. So because of this, unlike the other prisoners in other parts of Bergen-Belsen, um, who had their hair shorn and were wearing black and white prison garb, they were allowed to keep their hair and their clothes. And they got a, they had a little bit better conditions with food. And anyway, there's this group of women that are being moved into this camp next and they see them in this sort of tent camp. And they, they're they very, they're, most of them are like sort of rail thin and wearing, the, again, the black and white prison garb. Um, pretty soon the Germans don't decide they don't want the, the, the women from the both camps looking at each other or exchanging information. So they cover the fence with, um, with straw so they can't look through. And it's still, it's very dangerous for any kind of communication between the fence because, you know, you would be dead if you were caught. But women being women, wanted to com- they wanted to communicate. They were desperate for information. And one day, they started hearing some Dutch on the other side. Some Dutch women had come to their side. And so, so words were exchanged in Dutch. Somehow it filters through back to one of the women who was a neighbor back from this neighborhood that she'd come from in Amsterdam and said, listen, Anna Frank, she's on the other side of that fence. And Hannah says, how can that possibly be? Anna is safe in Switzerland having hot chocolate with her grandmother. You know, she has this very mm-hmm. sort of idyllic vision of her in Switzerland yeah. being safe. And she's so confused and so upset, she decides she has to go find out for herself because if Anna's there, she needs to know. And the women who were in the barracks with her are say, don't do it. You have a little sister here that you're taking care of inside the barracks who's only, you know, at this point about three years old. You can't, you can't risk it. She says, no, I must go see my friend. Again, this, this loyalty to Anna sort of runs throughout the entire, her entire life. Um,
1: well, this is what one of my questions was, why do you think, either one of you, I guess, why, when it is so dangerous to lead the barracks and go to the fence, right? Why did she risk it all to try and find Anna? Because it isn't just her, she's also looking after her little sister who's what three or three,
0: three about three and a half at the
2: time. Three this point. and a half at the
1: time. I, mean, I think it right. is the
2: connection to the former life. Hmm.
1: Have you spoken to this? Have you spoken about this with your mum? Like, why did you go? Why why did you not just stay in your relative safety? Why did and you know, risk your all? First of all,
2: she never thought herself as a hero. You know, whatever she did in the Holocaust. Including to help her sister and her father, she even brought him uh, medicines. And she she didn't eat, and she bought medicines. She didn't do as if she's a hero, but I think she she wanted to have some connection with what the life was before.
1: So she'd heard that her best friends, yeah, there, yeah. and she was shocked. I'm she her. was
0: shocked. She was sure she is drinking chocolate. Hot so go, so what, in so, so so she hears that so she hears so this happens? and she comes out and it was, imagine this you know it's it's February it's cold it's, it's icy rain she's wearing the same jacket she had been wearing for two years so at this point it wasn't in her wrist anymore it was probably up to her elbow oh. and she goes to the fence
1: this is at night right mm-hmm. so dark has fallen yeah you're meant to be locked up in your barracks correct. And she then creeps out.
0: She creeps up very quietly. And
1: Avoids the shivers. spotlights and what
0: you. Shivering both with fear and with cold, you know, and approaches the fence and in a very small voice goes, Hello, hello, anybody there? And by chance, a voice replies. It's, Miss, it's a woman named Mrs. August van Pels, a Dutch. A German woman who had also lived in the neighborhood and who had by chance been in hiding with Anne Frank and her family, and the she says of Peter, the, the mother of Peter, the mother of Peter, who the boy she had a like had a relationship with in the in the attic, her sort of friend slash boyfriend, and she says, "Oh, you must be here for Anna." Margot is too sick to come, but I will bring Anna.
1: Margot is Anna's Margot a sister. big sister, right?
0: But it's almost like in a voice, like, "Oh, I will come bring her down," as if it was like normal times, you know. I will. You must be oh, waiting you, for Anna. Oh, Anna! <laughs> yeah, 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 sure,
1: I'll go and get her. Exactly,
0: <laughs> like it's very sort of a casual tone, and she brings Anna to the fence, and remember, we she can't see her because it's with 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 a, with a, with the True. barbed wire, but she hears her and she recognizes her voice and she knows her. It's her, but it's sort of like a, it's 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 a, it's a voice that's sort of weak and raspy, and she quickly. So they, like, the first thing they do is they just start crying. Two little, two girls on the opposite, side, opposite, opposite ends of this this fence under this dark, rainy, freezing night, you know, in tears. Um, but they quickly—they don't have a lot of time. <laughs> Through the tears, they tell each other, they update one another. Hannah tells her her mother had died in childbirth. She didn't know that. She told her that her father is very weak in in the in the, Bergen the hospital. That her sister Gabi is still with her. Their grandmother is still alive. And Anna wails, I am all alone in the world. I have no one. You at least have your father and your sister. and I have no one else in the world.
2: And I am very hungry. I have nothing to eat. And then my mother said... I will go and fetch you something. I don't know oh. how she promised this because nobody
0: had anything. Nobody had to food, no one had any nothing, spare food. Nothing, nothing. And you know Hannah would just, and Anna described that she, you know, her, her, her Anna's most beloved feature was her hair. She had this dark brown chestnut hair and she used to like spend all the time to make it have a little curl and a wave and it was she loved her hair. And she said that her beautiful hair was gone that you know her hair was shorn. She was, you know, she was wearing these pajamas she had a blanket to kind of she had sort of a a, 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 a of flies
2: a, you know angry. a lice infested
0: blanket around her i mean it was a broken shadow of this incredibly vivacious dynamic friend
1: and you, you've obviously spoken to hannah about this at length what when Anna said to her i need some food can you can you get me some i'm starving and she said yeah i'll, I'll get you some given that there is no food and they're in a concentration camp and you know she can't get enough for her and her little sister let alone for anna on on the other side of the fence what was going through her mind like when she spoke to you about the story mm-hmm. was it like a inner resolve i am going to get her food? i mean what what was going on
0: i think she said she had no idea how she was going to do it but she just had to say yes to anna she didn't want to leave her she didn't want to let her friend down it just broke her heart to to refuse her, you know? And, and she, she didn't, she didn't have a plan at hand. I think it was just a spontaneous, generous answer of, yes, my friend is broken. My friend is in need. I'm going to help my friend. She didn't have the how yet, but she knew she was going to do then it. And
1: how would she arrange to re-meet up? They're, they're, you know, they're on different sides of the fence. It's right. like, they're probably, they're, they don't have watches no. or she anything. Said, oh, they she said,
0: talked about it. We will come, let's say in three days and, Oh. She, she said, yeah, she said, come back to the fence." I think it was a, the two nights later. Come back, and I'll I will get something together for you by then. And she creeps back, you know, through the mud, through the ice, through the cold. She goes into the barracks, and the women are all in, you know, she are surrounding her in the barracks. Um, and this is in a, in a story of like supreme, I would say, like female solidarity, <laughs> they come together and say, we're going to help this child. We're going to help this girl on the other side of the fence. They don't know her, you know, but they but they know Hannah and they love Hannah. And, um, and if you remember that, you know, in the barracks, so many people had been separated from their own family members and they kind of created new families yeah. and new connections. And there's a woman named Mrs. Abraham who had seven children who took on um, Hannah and her little sister Gabby as her own. And they created their own sort of like, you know, nest as it were, you know, within yeah. the within the barracks. And she had a sister and it, it was remarkable. And I think in other times in history, I think back to the story, of um, of African-Americans in, in America uh, when they lived in slave cabins. And so many of their members of their families were being sold by the owners to different people. And they had to create their own families to survive.
2: You had a family or you had someone, you had strengths. The moment you were alone, you really had no chance. So this Mrs. Abrams with her seven children, you know, Let's say today you want a babysitter from a neighbor and they have seven children. They will say, oh, we cannot take your child. No, she said, your father helped everybody. Now it's my, my turn.
1: turn. The humanity, the kindness, the when you're you're starving and everyone's starving, that will help you, will help you get some food to your friends. When I spoke to Edith Eger on the, on the podcast a few years ago, There's so many things I remember from that conversation, but one of the things she said to me, or one of the stories she relayed was about how kindness ended up saving her life. She once got given, from memory, like a a little rusk of bread. And she said it would have been so easy just to eat that myself. No one was around. I could have just had it all and I was starving, but I didn't. I broke it into six or seven pieces and shared it. And then at some point in the future... When they were on what she thought was their death march just before liberation, Edith shared how she just didn't have the energy to go on and she was just lying there on the ground. And those same people who she shared the bread with came to help her. Came to help her. Mm. And so I think there's a beauty in, in the midst of this um torture and dehumanization. To see
0: the humanity of humans the people. can still be kind. Mm. Yeah, and they kept them that, and that's and what I think kept them together. They could that they could say, "We're in the midst of complete barbarity. We're being whipped and tortured and killed and left like less than dogs on the road." You know, I mean, again, imagine outside of their barracks, there were piles and piles of corpses.
1: In the book, when you, when Hannah's father has Mm. just died she didn't want to look anywhere where she previously is at trucks where you'd see uh, the legs legs of dead dead bodies so I don't want to see any of that because I don't want to see my dad's legs exactly and it's unimaginable unimaginable to someone like me what that is like completely unimaginable I can read it I can hear it from you and it wasn't that long ago that's yeah. the that's the 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 really profound, scary, worrying um, sort of message for me. You know, that's a question I have for both of you actually, and I wonder what your mother, Ruthie Hannah, would say if she was here. Given what she went through and overcame, and the beautiful life that she lived afterwards, right, which mm-hmm. I definitely want to talk about. Is there a feeling that? this could happen again.
2: Exactly. People say what you as the second uh, generation of the Holocaust say, and I think really the feeling that everything, everything can be nice and lovely and it can be broken in one moment.
1: I guess the wider question is then, why is it so important that this book was written. Why are survivor stories like Hannah's Mm -hmm. so important?
0: Millions and millions of people were slaughtered in the Holocaust, right? And the world was completely silent. Her neighbors were, for the most part, completely silent when they saw those kids in rucksacks going across the square. When they saw the call-up orders of the Jews in their neighborhood, like Hannah's family, being loaded into trucks, and on and onto the onto 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 what they went on to, people were mostly quiet. When good people stay quiet, terrible things can happen. When racism goes unchecked. It can lead to hatred. Hatred kills. Hannah saw that in front of her own very eyes. And and by chance, she survived that hell. And she's able to tell us throughout her life, she never stopped telling the story, right? Um, And in this book, it's all sort of in one place. And uh, we need books like this. We need books that tell people... Not just what Anne Frank went through in the Holocaust, what Anne Frank tells us all takes place in the confines of the Attic. She didn't get to write the book about the horrors that Mm. came after. This is the book that Anna didn't get to write. Yeah. But my mother
2: saw also good people. Let's say the woman of the Rabbi Koretz that gave her for for Gabi two glasses of milk. Now, Gabi was three and a half years old and they only gave till 3 years old but these two glasses this is between death and living yeah such a and this woman could take it for herself for her children she
1: gave it in the camp she, she gave it to Gabby.
2: yeah t- she gave it to Gabby. she she was in charge of uh, giving milk because
0: she, her fa- her husband uh, knew the mother the father of my grandfather there's a lot of there's a lot of sort of like paying forward you know hannah's father was a very giving person and a very helpful person in the community and to see how even when he was not there physically anymore to help his daughters his sort of the memory of how he had helped others helped others help his daughters
1: it's it's interesting we talk a a lot on the show about kindness and the importance of kindness and compassion and the health benefits of kindness and compassion but it strikes me as though a lot of people let's say hannah's father were being kind because it's the right thing to do. Just because that's who we are. You know, we yeah, have a strong. This was faith. the way of living. That's the way of living. That's what you do. And I guess that's a message we can all take. Like, you never know when the kindness you give out to people will be repaid. Like, don't do it for that yeah, reason. Exactly. Right?
2: Do it because, do it you because have it's the do right do thing it.
1: to do. And so in a world now, particularly because of the online world where Many people are seeing division, hatred, racism, bigotry, and intolerance to people with different views. I'm interested, was there anything Hannah saw over the last few years, over the last 10, 15 Mm. years, that reminded her of the, you know, the march up to the concentration camps? Is there Mm. any because what's really interesting about the story? looking at it now, you know, in hindsight is the many years where this was building and building and building and things were getting worse and the wars were closing in before the actual war and concentration camps. So was there anything Hannah would observe or you guys observe in society Mm -hmm. and go, this is on a slippery slope yeah, she
2: mm-hmm. was very much afraid of what the iranians want to do to israel because they say it we want to sweep israel and this made her very very frightened mm-hmm.
1: so hearing that language was triggering for her
2: she was afraid of it because they say we want to sweep you out and she said how can it be after the holocaust that country can say something to to
0: kill others and to that they will yeah. not be anymore. I was really struck by Hannah's um interest in the world. She was a very curious person and very very much focused on the news and what was happening in the world. And um, till the end. Till, the, till end. the end. And um when we in, in the last months of her life there was it was it was the same time that there was an the uprising of women in Iran. So she was always very aware and attuned to sort of injustice in the world no matter where it was happening. Um and uh, and I think, yeah, I don't think she felt that the, 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 this, the coast was now clear. The whole reason she kept telling her story from 1957 onwards, f- 1957 is when Otto Frank kind of anoints her and says, will you go speak about your story? And imagine, 1957, most Holocaust survivors were not telling their story yet.
2: Nobody was talking in Israel. They would say to them, oh, you went like sheep to slaughter. And the survivors were a little bit ashamed, you know?
1: Rita, can I ask you, you said there's, there was a guilt with the survivors. Was the guilt that they had survived whereas others had died? Or was there a it, guilt and shame that they'd bo- actually ended both, up there?
0: Both of them. It and was very complicated. Would, but other people would look at them and say, what did you have to do to survive in the camps? You know, and they would say like, my father or my family didn't survive. What did you, like, what bread did you steal out of someone's hand? You know she she came to Israel. It was a brand new country, and there was this sort of this founding idea that we you know we are strong. We are you know we have to be strong and mighty. And the idea of of the, of the victims of the Holocaust it felt like they had done something sort of almost shameful by not surviving and not by not rebelling. A remarkable thing is that, you know, a few years later, you know, after 50, in 1961, um Adolf Eichmann, the one of the architects of the Holocaust, is apprehended. He's in hiding, he's living in hiding in Argentina. And 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 one of the most amazing things to me about Hannah's story is how she touches on so many historical turning point moments. You know, she happens to like move in next door to Anne Frank, who becomes the face of the Holocaust. She herself survives the Holocaust. She's in the early days of the founding of the state of Israel. And then one of her cousins, by chance, is the chief interrogator of the Mossad um, and is and apprehends Eichmann and brings him back to trial.
1: If you don't believe in fate or some <laughs> higher powers, then this story really makes you think about it. Even the fact that by chance, it, amongst tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of prisoners she's somehow just across the fence from her best friend anna i mean let's just go back to that story yeah. for a minute yeah, so sure. we've we we've got to the point where she gets word that anna's next door she's shot because she thinks she's in switzerland she has that little conversation with her comes back tells her the women in her barrack look. My, my friend's starving. We need to get food. So they, they somehow get some food together. Yeah, yeah, Then what happens?
0: Yeah, they somehow, and, and they, again, like you mentioned with Edith, like yeah, people have food and they usually save it for themselves, right? So a couple of weeks before, one of the only Red Cross packages had actually arrived to her side of the camp. So everyone got a little small, little shoebox uh, size of, of, of dried fruit and a few rusks, like not very much. And had, some of them had squirreled little bits and pieces of it away for themselves, um, but when she came and said, "Listen, I need help," everybody started going back to their bed and tucking things out up from under pillows and bringing a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and they put it inside of a sock. <laughs> and um, and uh, and and Hannah went off again in the cold, in the bitter. So
1: sure, she snuck out. She snuck risking out her life again, well, again. Right. Exactly. To throw it to and, Anna. She, and she
0: goes to the fence and she calls out, "Anna." Anna comes to the fence, and she says, "Hi." Doesn't waste any time. I'm throwing you, I'm throwing it to you now. And all of a sudden she hears, But she hears footsteps and she hears a scream, a primal scream. It's Anna screaming and crying and sobbing because those footsteps belong to a woman who'd come and stolen the food package out from under her.
2: She was also hungry. And she yeah, took it. so
1: this is really interesting. So there, there is kindness and humanity, but there's also self-preservation.
2: But you can well, you, cannot, you, cannot you can't judge blame them. it. You, you cannot, can't judge it.
1: Exactly. I get it. I get it. No no and I think any, any of us who think we know what we would we do. We don't know we, what
2: we would have done. I agree. Mm-hmm.
1: We just no idea when that sort of pressure is exerted on us, how we're going to act.
0: We don't know ourselves. We don't. No, no it's a test you never want to have to undergo, right?
1: Yeah. So <laughs> so Anna doesn't get the foods.
0: And she is inconsolable. And Hannah, in in, in, in order to placate her, says, don't worry, I will come back. And I will come back tomorrow night. Just come back to the fence tomorrow night. I will find you food. And again, she has no idea how she's going to make this happen again, how she's going to make something out of nothing. Because she has already gotten (laughs) from the people. But she just, again, another act of friendship, another act of giving and loving and caregiving. I mean, Hannah, after the war, becomes a nurse. (laughs) And um, she is in her very being, she is a caregiver. And so she says, I will bring you something. Just stop crying. Just stop crying. I will come. And back. so
1: she does get some food together. She goes back
0: to those once back to that amazing group of women and their solidarity and their friendship and their kindness. Again, they scrimp and scrape whatever they possibly can find. Um, and she goes back, creeps out into the dark night again. Again, imagine every time this is risk of being shot and killed on the spot. And she comes out and she creeps, and this time. They're a little bit more strategic," <laughs> she says. "I'm throwing it to you," you know. She says where they sort of say where they're standing so they can cause they can't see each other. Remember, yeah. they make sort of a triangulation kind of a plan. She throws it over the fence. Boom! Anna catches it. Oh.
2: Wow!
1: And that's the last time they.
0: Yeah, because then the grandfather was very
2: ill, and he her father, he Hannah's died. father he died and then sorry hannah's hannah's father yeah so she stayed some days you know as if to warn, mourn
1: so when she left anna frank for the well what is now the last time right right? so i'm just interested what was going through her mind so she's got some food this time for her for her friends Mm -hmm. her friends will leave but she's got it how did they leave it then
0: It was very, very rushed because they were, you know, they knew that they had the time was limited. So it was a very rush. But the fact that they were able to say to each other, maybe we'll see each other in the fall at school. Here they were, you know, again, completely like, you know, dehumanized to the ultimate degree. Their families, you know, they're basically both orphaned at this point, you know, um, or on the verge of being orphaned for Hannah. Um, And yet they could still imagine a better place. They could still imagine a normal world outside of this planet called hell, called Bergen-Belsen Concentration Camp, they can imagine going back to school in the fall, which to me is actually very inspiring. that They could still imagine some sort of real normal well, life. Well,
1: I've written in my notes, one of, one of the things I've I've circled is the words imagination because it's it, it strikes me throughout this entire... And, I, and I'm aware the book can only detail certain moments of a long story, right? So there's many days... Probably tedium, heartache, torment, seeing people be torture. murdered, torture. That we just, you can't write it, it would be 100 times the size, right? To, to detail every day. But you would need imagination to get through,
2: right? Mm-hmm. I think imagination helps you stay normal, as if to go to another world for at least some minutes,
0: some minutes not to be tortured just to be in another place. Helps
2: you
1: stay alive.
0: Yeah, Yeah, very much so. And I think Hannah always, there was a roadmap for her and her life. Her father kept saying, we are going to be exchanged one day and we are going to go to Palestine. We are going to go, what they called the land of Israel. At this point, it was British mandate Palestine. And so they always had that hope and that imagination. And she could sort of imagine a life, you know, living on a kibbutz, becoming a nurse. She, she had a, she had a, she had where to go and she had an idea of how she was going to get there
1: this idea of um hope again is something i think about a lot there's many famous uh, people who have survived the holocaust who have written books mm. well but maybe not enough actually but there's a few right so victor frankl and his book yeah. man's search for meaning he talks about purpose yeah, and about exactly this, this is
2: what she had
1: yeah and she
2: had a meaning. First of all, to take care of her sister.
1: Well, this is it. There's this bit this in, the, in the book, page 236. Um, and, and it's decided it's it's it that they go to sleep together each night together. They wake up together, her with a little sister, Gabby, who's what, three at the time, three and a half? Everything about us was intertwined. We fell asleep next to one another every night. It was seeing Gabby when I woke up in the morning that had forced me to move forward in even the blackest of moments, I had done all I could to keep her alive, which in turn had stopped me from giving up."
2: Exactly. It was from both sides. This she took care of her sister, really made her stay alive because she had a significant for her life, like Viktor Frankl says.
1: Just taking a quick break to give a shout out to AG1, one of the sponsors of today's show. Now, nutrition is, of course, really important for our health, not only our physical health, but our mental health as well. In fact, I have seen on many occasions that improving nutrition can help people who are struggling with anxiety. Now, I want to make it really clear in an ideal world, Everybody would get all of their nutrition from real whole foods. But I know from over two decades of seeing patients that a lot of people struggle to consistently find the time to get the nutrition that they want. Does that sound familiar? Do you often have the best intentions for your diet, but then you find that life gets in the way? I get it. You know, I really do. This is one of the reasons why I am a fan of good quality whole food supplements like AG1. Now, AG1 is a foundational nutrition supplement that delivers comprehensive nutrients to support whole body health. It's a science-driven formulation of 75 vitamins, minerals, probiotics, and whole food source nutrients. And the best thing of all is that all this goodness comes in one convenient daily serving that tastes really, really great. AG1 has been in my own life for over five years now. And I genuinely think it is one of the best whole food supplements out there. It can help support energy and focus, gut health and digestion. And it also helps support a healthy immune system. So if you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. For listeners of my show, you can try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to drinkag1.com forward slash live more. That's drinkag1.com forward slash live more. Now, I want to draw not a comparison, but I just want to share something, not in any way to trivialize this. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I'm not saying it's the same thing at all. But one thing as a doctor that I see, Mm. and there's good research on this now, is that when we do things for others, when we volunteer, it can be so powerful for our inner well-being. You know, many people who suffer with depression actually volunteering and getting out in a community where you have to do things for others, where you feel that people need you and they rely on you. I have seen transformative changes. Now, I'm not at all comparing that to being in the Holocaust, being in a concentration camp. But it's interesting that there's a theme there that when you have hope, when you have to do something for, for something beyond who you are, you can get through stuff.
2: Yeah, the principle is the same. Yeah, that you take today, old people that come and help other old people, it gives them hope and significant to the life. They are not useless.
1: Can, can, can I? was going to ask about Gabby. So Ga- I have to tell you. So Gabby, about Gabby. is your uh, let's my is your auntie, right? Aunt, so my so. Great
2: aunt, so how old something. is she now? 82, okay. full of life, like like my now mother. I can,
1: now, I cannot imagine this. If I ever come to visit in Israel, mm-hmm. which I hope to do, I'd love to meet uh, her because... You will I, meet
2: her, you will be impressed. I've read about something. her as
1: a little girl. And one of the most profound things in this book for me, I mean, I could give you a list, but when they are liberated, and Hannah talks about, it, I think it's spring. And there's flowers, and she goes. oh, I don't think Gabby knows. She doesn't know what a flower is. is,
2: not what chocolate and is. That just not what hit me. Is. That Nothing. just hit
1: me right in my heart. Like at, uh, maybe four years old, mm-hmm. she has no idea the colors of a flower, and it, it just dawns on you how I don't know ridiculous how how crazy this whole situation was. How dark it was. How people did that to other people. How people did that to other people.
0: But you know that's like, the that's
1: the remarkable thing, isn't it? That other humans are doing that to other people. Why? Yeah, right,
0: hatred. It, it goes. It just goes to the old. You know, people talk about anti-Semitism as the oldest hatred. We look at you know racism and and prejudice around the world. Um, and and Jews have been experiencing it since time immemorial. And and at a time like today, when anti-Semitism is again resurging and hatred is again resurging, and the way leaders speak. The, you know, and then the sort of the, the rise of the far right and the rise of this mm-hmm. sort of incredible, Sort of divisive and cruel language, and outsiders and insiders, and foreigners, and and, and 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 nationalism. I mean, a lot of the echoes of what we heard, you know, at the, the dawning of, of of the Second World War, even the or even the First World War, World War, that led to the same. We are hearing again today those mm-hmm. messages, things that we never thought we would hear before. The fear. I think about my own grandparents who were living in Italy in 1939 and had to flee, and imagining them in their in their kitchen, trying to you know and and, and trying to find somewhere in the world to go to, and that always felt so abstract to me but in recent years it feels much less abstract
1: yeah it's interesting recently I'm not sure how much of this you're aware of um and 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 I must be honest I'm not you know we're all biased in terms of what we're exposed to and so what we see so the whole issue of refugees in the UK is a political hot potato let's put it like that and recently and this is not really a political show at all. Like it's it's a health podcast, but I think this is really, really important because I think this absolutely impacts health. Like the media and politicians often like to other people because that's ultimately what we're talking about, isn't it? A hundred percent. We're talking about just othering people and it's when you other them, that's when you can start this slow decline and... Um, discrimination and prejudice and dehumanization.
0: We're seeing so much er division and it feels really urgent, you know, that like these, when people, you know, especially with social media, people don't feel any real um, accounting for their own words. You know, people sort of throw things out and the the level of cruelty and the level of bashing um, is... is, You know, the way of talking...
2: When you write it on a paper or in the computer, you don't see anybody that you you talk to so people really write things very very dirty very not good. and people
0: and people can also sort of hide behind these words and you know and you see people being you know, you know especially even to the, to the refugee issue you mentioned you know the sort of dehumanization and the language of sort of like cancer and vermin and, and again like those are, those are the words that we we heard back in the 1930s.
1: So the message being words matter. And I think a take home for, for everyone listening or we watching this. We say words
0: can kill. If you are not saying the right words, it can kill someone. And not saying a word can also kill, right? I mean, as we, words can be deadly, but silence can sometimes be even more deadly. When the, when the sort of fanatic minority takes control and sort of reason is flo- flies out the door, when good people stay silent... Because it's too inconvenient for whatever reason, when people stay silent, that's that's when you look at the story of Hannah. When you look at the story of the rise of Nazism, including in, in Holland, is too many people stayed quiet. Too many people did not protest.
1: You know, in in the section in the book on uh, liberation after they they get off that train, I think the chapter is the lost train, mm. and I mean there's <laughs> there's so many things in that chapter which. Um, which is just incredible. One of them is then they're going around these. I think the Russian soldiers say, "Look, go and find some food here, get some shelter here." And I think, I think Hannah was talking about this this idea that the Germans who they saw were looking at them with almost hatred, and she was confused, saying, "Why are you looking?" us with hatred, why not look at your government or the Nazis with hatred? Uh, You know, maybe can you just elaborate on that? Yeah. It's quite striking to read that.
0: Interesting. Yeah. I mean, they had been so indoctrinated that these, these Jews were parasites upon the nation, that they were the danger, that they were, you know, taking over the country. Um, and, uh, they had forgotten that, that they were people. And even if they saw them coming off of the train, this train that was liberated by the Russians in the end. And, you know- And then
2: ha- they really looked so bad. They, they were skeletal. Were like I mean, you know, Muslims. he had,
0: They looked like going to die on the spot. Yeah, I mean, they're basically like sort of walking, living skeletons.
1: Yeah, she was 30 kilos when she yeah, came yeah. out. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's incredible. This yeah. reminds me of something Edith Eger also said to me in, in the conversation with her and i think it kind of speaks to these themes she says when a i think she was referring to someone else but she said when a lie gets repeated enough times
2: mm-hmm.
0: it, it becomes true comes uh-huh. the truth right mm-hmm.
2: and
1: and it kind of speaks to this right
0: right and i think they yeah i mean it's it's it is, it is a, an, a, an incredible image when you when you think of it you know like here they are they had been sort of protected in their homes in germany and they had been um you know, this is this is a farming village that they came to. Their pantries were stocked with food. They were they were they were fine, right? Um, um, but uh, I don't know. If, I don't know if it triggered some sort of guilt in them as well that they suddenly yeah. saw these these Jews that they had seen as these some sort of like interlopers um, and and dangerous figures, and now like in, in, this, in this looking as weak as possible. You know, as weak and sort of. Um, and I wonder if in some ways it, it, it pricked their conscience. In some ways, I, I don't know.
1: There's also this section. Again, in this in this chapter on liberation, where I think her and someone called Robert from the train yeah. go into a, a house, and there's a German mother with her baby, and they've got I think cheese and jam and meat, and the German lady I think maybe maybe quite scared at seeing what they're going to do to to. He's like, "Please, this is all the food I have for me and my baby," and Robert and Hannah left it even though they were starving, even though they'd been on a train, I think for 13, 13 days, right? This this lost train, they didn't know where they were going. Like they didn't even they believe didn't they were free. They
2: any food. Nothing. They still didn't
1: take it. And, and, and I thought that that theme of humanity comes through. It's like, wow. Wow. You still didn't take it when you were literally starving. You're weighing only 30 kilos. You have every right, most people would say, to feel bitter if you wanted to and to take that food when they're probably well fed anyway. Like that was incredible. The other incredible thing was this cruel irony where people who had survived the concentration camp, survived the train journey, and they were so excited to see the food, they ended up dying from gorging on the foods. Like mm. I, I just couldn't get my head around that. What... <sighs> Just a they, cruel irony.
2: They were starving and they saw all this food and they just ate it and they died immediately.
1: Yeah. And Hannah actually explains says we were lucky the house we went yeah, to they had didn't actually potatoes. they didn't have That's much. So we there wasn't the risk there of gorging and killing ourselves on food. She was lucky
0: in this. But you uh, you asked me earlier about like one of of the things that changed me writing this book. I feel like I look at food really differently now. You know, when I see, when I I have children that are about the same age as actually as Hannah was um, during the course of the story, 13 and 15 year old children, and they often leave food on their plate. Um, I really have a hard time throwing it away, you know? I really have a hard time, you know, not sort of packing it up for leftovers or gobbling it down myself. I have it all <laughs> my life. People yeah. from the
2: Holocaust cannot throw food. I wanted to
1: talk about, particularly with you, Ruthie, I guess, was this relationship with food. Because having been in a concentration camp... And having food ration, if you can even call it that, what then happens to how you view food? So like you didn't have it, you you'd literally eat anything that was given to you. How does that then change you as a person? Like, it, maybe explain to us what was your mother's relationship with food like, and how did how were you brought up around food?
2: First of all, we would not throw food. Food, you you never. You, don't you have to food. finish. You have to finish. But I know that a lot of people for the Holocaust, they would give their children to eat and to eat and to eat. Now we know that we don't have to eat too much. Yeah. But my mother, she really was normal with it.
0: One of her fantasies though, of course, throughout the war, you talked about imagination before. Sorry. You know, she talked about like what and and a lot of times people in the in the barracks would talk about food and they'd go through preparing elaborate meals in their mind and they would talk about the recipes and what this and that. And she didn't have much patience for that. Um but what she did think about constantly was a uh, toasted egg with butter and a poached egg. And, chocolate. <laughs> and hot and hot chocolate as well. But that's what sort of sort of sustained her was that was what yeah. and, and and a clean bed with clean sheets. My aunt Gabby, she's crazy with cleaning.
2: She's crazy with cleaning. Why
1: do you think that is?
2: Because of the Holocaust. Because all her
0: childhood was with... Dirty clothes. Dirtiness. Everything was dirty. I mean, imagine in that in that train, for example, yeah. just the, the level of oh, filth that this they descended killer. into. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she, she, they were in, they were in this train that was meandering through the German countryside, just in the very last days of the war, uh, dodging bombs and whatnot. Um, and at one point, the man who was very sick next to her in the train had some sort of um, diarrhea, and he basically sp- he had he collected his. I had to say this politely, but anyway, he, he, had, he had a, he had a, a bowl basically uh, where he was sort of collecting his own refuse, and it spilled on top of Hannah on her dress, and she was completely and she tried her
1: best to keep that clean. Yeah, yeah. The keep the blanket, the time. blanket
0: well, the clean blanket. and try to clean. So blanket,
1: basically, diarrhea on. all over her, and yeah. there's no, Coating there's nothing her. you can do. After this After day. ten
0: days that you don't eat and don't uh, clean yeah. yourself. So, um, so anyway, her sister, you know, who was so little and has very claims to have no memory of her time in Bergen-Belsen at, in the concentration camp, and no memory of the train. She um, must have some sort of very visceral memories because you know, she was an Oc- she is to this day like an OCD level cleaner uh, of her home. When I went to interview her at her house, which was spotless, she told me. When I, when I remarked on how sparkling clean her home was, she says, I've been trying to clean up from the filth of the Nazis ever since we came out of the camps.
1: And she's now in her 80s. 82. Yeah. She's still and, cleaning. And what's so striking when I hear that, we know from the medical science that early years are important. But Hannah went into the camps when she was 13, 14? 14. 14 mm-hmm. years old, okay? So... Although it's early, it's not as early as Gabby. So those years we know, naught to three, naught to seven, are formative. So much of who we are and how we think and, and our behaviours are laid down, or or, or are strongly influenced by those times. So it's interesting just hearing this that actually Gabby was so little and she's got no she's got no conscious memory, but her whole behaviours are are basically showing that there is a memory, as you say, a visceral memory. Yeah.
2: I think all the psychologists can throw all their theories when they see Gabi, because Gabi had really a very bad childhood and with evil and all this torture. But she grew to be a, such a good human uh. being. All her life, she is doing good. She's volunteering, she's working. She was a very good teacher with the very hard children. With a lot of uh, Difficult. difficulties. Cases. Yeah. She was the teacher for these children. And then she had uh, for old women, for old people, like a club that she was taking care of them, that we would laugh in the family and, and we'll say, oh, we would be, we would love to be old people in her club. And now she's all the time volunteering with uh, Alzheimer's. She's going even in the Corona. She went to people with Alzheimer's and she's making with a flute and she's singing for them and she's talking to them. She's and then she was volunteering in hospitals to bring food to the people that are waiting for the ill people and for everybody. You know, she would come with good things, with chocolate and whatever But for years, she's only doing good. And I say, wow, what happened from a child that saw only evil in the very, very significant years? What was
1: the relationship like between Hannah and Gabi? I read that passage from the book, clearly showing how close and how much they would have bonded in the concentration camps. But when they are free, when they've made their new life in Israel, their mothers, their grandmothers... What was their relationship like?
2: Yeah, they were very, very close.
1: People can be close. Siblings can be close for sure. One might imagine after such an intense experience, there would be, not that you can compare these things, but a closeness almost on a different level. Mm -hmm. Did you detect that, that there was something about that bond, which was, this is more than just a regular sisterly bond?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think also their their bond. I mean, Hannah basically became a surrogate mother yeah. for 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 Gabi even before they were arrested and deported because the mother dies in yeah. childbirth. So she's instantly the father's overwhelmed. The grandparents are old, or she becomes sort of like the caregiver of her little sister. From and, and there's actually a photo of her before the war in a sandbox sitting next to her sister, and she looks sort of she's 14, but she also she, she like has a mother. she looks like a mother. It's hard to put it's hard to put into words, but she just has that like. Look of responsibility and love in her eye already, even before she's, you know, in the camps with her. Um, I think there there was a little bit of tension, you know, uh, after the war. This sort of relates back to your story about connection to food. Um, they're in Switzerland after the war, recovering both of them. Uh, um, and Gabi is put into an orphanage. And the orphan people who run the orphanage mean well, but they know nothing about children in trauma. They know nothing about children who come out of a, a, a concentration camp. And Gabby, who had sort of wasn't the best eater even before before uh, yeah, before she, she was deported, um, she would sometimes throw up her food. And as a quote unquote punishment for this, the people of the orphanage made her eat the food she had just thrown up, oh. and that traumatized her even further. So um you know, there was just again there was no there was no um
2: uh, no, was no there, understanding no one, yeah, there, the children
0: that came from yeah. the holocaust and went to orphanage yeah and then when she rejoins when she ends up they both end up um in, in in Israel in the early years of the state but at this point Hannah has uh gotten engaged and gotten married and she sort of starts her new life with her husband who is who is Ruchi's father and Hannah and and Ru- and Gabi is adopted by another family and I think there was this, because they were so close and so intertwined. I think Gabby felt a little, you know, sort of, I don't know, baffled or confused that she was not going to be living in their home with yeah, them.
1: Yeah, I can, I can believe because that. And
0: my
2: mother was learning all the day in the hospital, you know, in hospital you have not to be at night, at, at daytime, so she couldn't be at home. Yeah. So then she went to a very good family.
1: Yeah. You know, this, this relationship to food is fascinating. Mm-hmm. This sort of question is two parts. One part is relating to what I've just said about, do you know um, other Holocaust survivors, other concentration camp survivors and what their relationship with food is like? And then I guess related to that is this wider question that we all like to be around people, at least from time to time, who have had similar experiences to us because you know they know what you've been through, you know what they've been through. So the second part of this question is, would your mother... Would Hannah want to get together with other survivors or is it something you don't want to talk about? I don't want to see other survivors. I want to get on with my life. You know, do you understand what I'm getting at? Yeah,
2: I I would say she was quite normal. She would go with everybody. She would talk with everybody. She was so open to know new things, to know new people. She, She was very open, very spontaneous. Yeah. You know,
0: as did Anna, I think, very much so. And you feel that in, when you read the diary, you feel that. But, but she also, had, I think, this appetite for life and always, you know, she said sort of being up for anything. But to, to your question about food, I think other survivors, you hear a lot about um, survivors who would hoard food. And I think also, yes, this idea of not never throwing anything away. And I see that even my my mother's own family, who was a refugee family, who never threw things away. I mean, Hannah did have friends, including Dutch uh, fellow Dutch friends who could come over to um to Israel after the war that she spent time with. Um, and she, but, and then she, but what's interesting to me is that sometimes she would there were other Bergen-Belsen survivors, including she worked with a doctor who was a survivor from Bergen-Belsen. She told me there was a neighbor in in in, in your in that very, in, in your comment who was also from Bergen-Belsen, mm-hmm. but they didn't really talk about it very much. Right. They didn't really. I, I think you know now we would think there'd be support groups or some sort of way to kind of come around around the trauma together. Um, there were a lot of survivors. Just they were in the ether. They were there, um, but you didn't necessarily know their backstories. More than half
2: of Israel was survivors. They didn't talk for years of what they had yeah. gone through.
0: Those they, early years were very much about like, okay, one foot f- one foot for the other. We have to marry. We have to create new families. We have yeah. to we have to create careers. I mean, she didn't. She was always very worried about money when she first came because she was an orphan. She yeah. didn't have any money. Interesting. Mr. Frank tried to help her out. You know, this is
1: Anna's dad. Anna's
0: father. Yeah, Otto Frank um, helped her out with some money um, originally, with, with, with and, and always made sure to sort of. And, and she had an aunt and. An aunt and an uncle in the states who also you know were there sort of for moral support and also I guess financial support if she if she really needed it but she um, you know she was sort of starting from scratch.
1: yeah there's, there's two things about her her sort of life in Israel which mm. I guess they seem like almost trivial things but they've really stood out to me. One is that you said the cold never left her and the way you write about it in the book or the way it's written is that even on a hot boiling summer's day she would still have a cardigan on and that that was really striking also that she would give all of her i think grandchildren or great-grandchildren the gift of a particular quilt
0: she never wanted Epoch, her, Epoch, eh. It's an eider down quilt. She wanted to make sure they would never experience Coldness. A, yeah, a smidgen of the sort of the cold, the terrible, Blanket. gnawing cold. She gave
2: all the grandchildren blankets. Good blankets.
1: There's two clear things which I'm sure there'll be much more in her adult life that was influenced by by, by this experience. But one of them is not wanting everyone to be cold. Anyone that she loves, I don't want this to be cold or hungry and we're not exactly. going to waste any foods. Mm-hmm. Which of course makes complete logical sense, doesn't it?
0: Mm-hmm. And just also just her, I mean, you know, the, the one book she had throughout the entire time she was imprisoned um, was a biography of Florence Nightingale, the first registered nurse. And that is a book she paged through, you know, the entire, repaged and paged through and reread many times over. And And indeed she was, you know, she basically was her sister's, nurse in a way, you know, and, and she was a caregiver and she becomes a nurse after the war and after, and uh, in, 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 her early years in Israel, she becomes a nurse. And who does she work with? Children, young children. I mean, she described to me when she first was in, in Jerusalem and in the old, in somewhere near the old city and she saw children, I think they were, um, uh, young Palestinian children. And she saw that they, some of them, you know, uh, you know, running noses and didn't have enough money. And, and it, it hurt her heart. Like all these years later, there were certain images of children suffering. She couldn't stand the sight of children suffering. And um, and who did she work with um, for a good many, many years? She worked with um, immigrant children. And although she herself was a brand new immigrant, relatively, she was teaching the newer, even more brand new immigrants from other parts of the world. Yeah.
1: Can I just touch on gratitude and appreciation for life? Now, I'm so interested and curious as to what Hannah's approach to life was with respect to gratitude or things not going her way. From your time with her, did you notice anything about gratitude and appreciation? Was there something there that was like, yeah, I can, I can see that, or was it didn't, was it not that obvious?
0: I think it was pretty obvious. I think there was sort of this heightened appreciation for very small things. Like when I would bring her like tulips or or she would share with me her, her favorite chocolates. I mean, she really, really liked the chocolates, you know, and she would talk about the chocolate and the chocolate cookie. Like it was just um again, this sort of like sort of like heightened appreciation and awareness for for small for small and big. I think most of all she appreciated um Her family, she was incredibly close with her three children and her grandchildren and now her great-grandchildren. The house was always brimming with a different relative or combinations of family members. You know, the way so many people in the West, they grow older alone. That was not the case for Hannah. Um, And I think she really sort of thrived being the head of this incredibly large, bustling um, loving brood and as, as she write. was admired but uh, by all my children
2: grandchildren great-grandchildren she was the big mama
1: oh i mean i love that phrase a heightened appreciation for the small things and i and, and i remember from the book her and gabby saying that all these great grandchildren how many how many is it
2: more than 30.
1: More than 30 great-grandchildren was their greatest revenge and on Hitler. Gabby,
2: and Gabi yes. has something around this number of grandchildren, you know, before the great-grandchildren. Wow. Just so absolutely incredible. They really had Which is also- good families, big families, and all of them so good, so willing to do good. This is what I say psychologists cannot explain that. Yeah. After what they have uh, gone through,
0: and I think I feel so steeped in the story of the the family life back in Berlin and Amsterdam, and I know that her father and her mother very much wanted to have a large family and yeah. very much really loved the idea of family life, and and to see like a couple of generations later, there's a lot of a lot of descendants.
1: How would she deal with stress when things happen in life that I guess you wouldn't want? And I guess you know where, where's my thing? My thinking is that in you know. You, the concentration count was stress on a different planet, right mm-hmm. the, the sort of stress most of us will never ever have to experience, but yet you manage it and you get through it. Uh, so I therefore to, how do you then manage
2: I have to more I, re- yeah please yeah uh, I lost my husband 26 years ago, and my mother was the only one that really functioned on that time this I remember. She said, "Now we have to do this, and you go here and you do that." She was the only one that nice. was functioning, but maybe it's also the education in Germany. You are very much uh, you. You cannot say, "Oh, now I am." Uh, I'm mourning, so I'm not doing so-and-so. No, no. You have to be a human being and to do what you have to do no matter what yeah. happens But I think to it you. speaks to
0: this sort of, I mean, unfortunate education she had in the concentration camps, with just chaos swirling around you, but you kind of have to keep focused on the task at hand. In the concentration camp, the task at hand was staying alive and keeping her sister alive. And the task at hand when Ruthie's husband suddenly died in a car accident, leaving her a widow with eight young children was... How do I get things together? How do I? How do I be the solid, you know, pillar yeah. of support? And
1: even before the concentration camp, when her mum dies after the giving spot, birth, she
2: she became a mum. She, she became a mum.
1: She has to deal with it, deal with the grief, deal with the fact that, that the wars are closing in. So it's interesting that. When you can manage and get through those stresses, I guess you can get through anything. I would have loved to have met your mother. I really would have. Um, I feel like I know her from from reading the book. I really do. Yeah. You, know, they, she,
0: you know what she would have said about you? She would have called you a mensch. A mensch is a Yiddish word that means um, a human, human being. being. <laughs> and oh. it's sort of the highest accolade you can give somebody if they're a mensch, if they're a good person. Oh,
1: <laughs> well, that's, yeah, I, I really would have loved to meet her. Hey, look! I, I could talk about Hannah's story, this book, for hours. It's 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 had a profound impact on me. It really has, uh, and, I, and I really hope everyone listening picks it up and reads it because it's 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 beautiful. It's life affirming. It's heartbreaking. It's tragic, but it's a human story. It's a real human story. This happened. This could happen again. Right, So we need to hear these stories. We need to embody them. We need to think about our own actions in the world. Where are we contributing to bigotry or hatred? Where are we contributing with our words and our language to prejudice? And to make
2: the world a better place.
1: Yeah. And so what can we do in our own mini worlds, in our own communities that... Embodies these qualities of kindness, of compassion, of treating everyone the same. I mean, I've said it before, I'll say it again, that the number one thing I teach my kids is about how they treat other people. I, I, I literally this week said, I don't care about your grades. What I care about is that you treat every single person you come across with respect. It doesn't matter who they are. And reading this book affirms to me that that's the right thing. That is the most important message to teach my children. To finish off then, and I'll go to both individually, Ruthie, if I could start with you. To finish off, this podcast is called Feel Better, Live More. When we feel better in ourselves, we get more out of our lives. You are one of Hannah's children. You know her story inside out. What final words of wisdom would you give to my audience? What's important?
2: To be a good human being, just to do good to other people. This is what I learned from my mother and from my aunt. Just to do good. and You can fill all of of your life with doing good to other people. And it makes you so happy.
1: And Dina, if I put that question to you, what would you say?
0: I mean, Hannah used to close her remarks to children and to others she spoke to um, using the words of her own religion, saying, you know, we are all created in the image of God. We are all, we were all created in the image of God. Um, so I would want to, in her name, repeat those, that wisdom as well. But I would add to it <laughs> to speak out when people are not treating other people. In the, like they are in the image of God as well. I guess if I could just add one more thing <laughs> for my little, to answer your question before, is, um, you know, you asked, before, it brings us back to the very first question you asked about sort of what changed in, in, in living and breathing Hannah's story sort of in real time, um, the idea that things can change very quickly and just that we all have to be very vigilant <laughs> to make sure um, that we're good to each other. Yeah.
1: She sounds like the most incredible lady i wish i'd had a chance to meet her but i'm delighted i got a chance to meet both of you it's a wonderful book thank you for coming on the show
0: thank you so much
1: really hope you enjoyed that conversation as always do think about one thing that you can take away and start applying into your own life now before you go just wanted to let you know about friday five it's my free weekly email containing Five simple ideas to improve your health and happiness. In that email, I share exclusive insights that I do not share anywhere else, including health advice, how to manage your time better, interesting articles or videos that I've been consuming, and quotes that have caused me to stop and reflect. And I have to say, in a world of endless emails, it really is delightful that many of you tell me it is one of the only weekly emails that you actively look forward to receiving. So if that sounds like something you would like to receive each and every Friday, you can sign up for free at drchatterjee.com forward slash Friday Five. Now, if you are new to my podcast, you may be interested to know that I have written five books that have been bestsellers all over the world, covering all kinds of different topics, happiness, food, stress, sleep, behaviour change and movement weight loss, and so much more. So please do take a moment to check them out. They are all available as paperbacks, eBooks, and as audio books, which I am narrating. If you enjoyed today's episode, it is always appreciated if you can take a moment to share the podcast with your friends and family or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week. And please note that if you want to listen to this show without any adverts at all, that option is now available for a small monthly fee on Apple and on Android. All you have to do is click the link in the episode notes in your podcast app. And always remember, you are the architect of your own health. Making lifestyle changes is always worth it. Because when you feel better, you live more.